This talk by Joan Sutherland is the seventh of nine in the series Vimla Kirti, The Dream of Awakening and the Room Where the Broken Heart Mends. It was given at Saragorda Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on June 23rd, 2011. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. We are in the um, eon of the sutra that Vimalakirti spoke, and we'll continue with that tonight. Last time, two weeks ago, when we met, we, it was a, we covered a lot of territory, and afterwards a couple of people said that there was uh, particularly one part of what we talked about that they'd like to explore more deeply, so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to pick up a piece from last time, and and keep going with it. Um, and that piece is when the goddess who lives in Vimalakirti's 10 by 10 foot magical room is having a dialogue with Shariputra, uh, one of the Buddha's main disciples. And um, she asks him a question about how long he's been liberated, and he won't answer. So she asks him why he won't answer. And he says, Liberation can't be spoken of in words, and so I don't know what I can say to you. And then she replies, words and writing are manifestations of liberation. All things that exist are manifestations of liberation. Shariputra asks, doesn't liberation mean detachment from desire, anger, and folly? And then the goddess shocks him more than she already has by asserting, It is only for self-obsessed people that the Buddha says that detachment from desire, anger, and folly is liberation. For those who are not self-obsessed, the Buddha says that the very essence of desire, anger, and folly is liberation. Um, A somewhat different take than we often hear, and this was the place that a lot of people asked to to keep going. So I want to start in the... um, in the deepest place in this dialogue, the sentence that that underpins everything else. And that is uh, when, when the goddess says, all things that exist are manifestations of liberation. Sometimes it can feel like in a spiritual practice, what we're doing is we're sorting things into the Um, manifestation of liberation or related to liberation or tending toward liberation or will help us on the way to liberation pile and the non-liberation pile. We're sort of making that discrimination all the time. And um, as as we've talked about so many times, the the fundamental um, message of this sutra is about non-duality. So we can't have two piles. There's only one pile, and that pile is... As the goddess says, everything is a manifestation of liberation. So what's that about? How can there only be one pile? Aren't there things that seem to get us you know, closer to it and things that seem to get us further away? Well, I think about um, something that one of our first ancestors, great master horse, great master Ma, said um, that that for countless eons, no being has ever fallen out of the deep meditation of the universe. So there's a couple of really gorgeous things in that. One is the image of everything that we experience from the birds just outside the walls here, 
to the galaxies whirling in space and everything beyond that is the samadhi, the deep meditation of the universe. That's what is. That's the first gorgeous thing. And the second gorgeous thing is no one and nothing has ever fallen out of that. There is no outside of that. There is no dropping from that. We are held and everything is held by that. So one of the questions that comes up over and over and over again in the koans is how can I requite the compassion that's been shown to me? Requite is a great Latinate word that has a sense of repay, but also a sense of what can I offer in exchange. And it's about when, when the question is, how can I requite this compassion? It's how can I requite the compassion of this deep meditation of the universe out of which I will never fall? And one of the ways we can answer that question, one of the ways we can requite that compassion, the extraordinary generosity we have been shown by the fact of being alive, is we won't push anything out of our samadhi of liberation, out of our dream of liberation. We will push nothing into the not related to liberation pile. We will hold it all in our deep meditation on liberation toward liberation, our hope for liberation, our dream of liberation. So what happens, though? Why does it feel sometimes like there are two piles, even if we want to hold everything in the one? Well, this comes up again and again and again in the Vimalakirti Sutra, and in fact, it's the very first um, story that we told about it when it's uh, in the garden outside of the town where Vimalakirti is in his home sick and the Buddha is teaching in the garden and he's saying that this world is a pure land, a kind of paradise. And uh, Shariputra again says, well, hold on, I got to say, this world does not feel like a pure land to me. This world feels really tough, really painful, really challenging. And I don't see it as a pure land. I see it as a place of suffering. And um, in their conversation, the Buddha shows Shariputra that the world is already the pure land. The problem is in his perception. He can't see it. And the Buddha makes something happen so that he can see it. And he says, the world hasn't changed. Your perception has changed. And that theme comes up and up and up again in the, in the sutra. So, so that when the goddess rains the flowers down upon the bodhisattvas and the private Buddhas, who are the people who are meditating for their own good, who are, you know, have a have a very separate and individual sense of what enlightenment is, and they're on that's they're on that path. We might call them maybe self-obsessed. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. But when she rains the flowers down on the bodhisattvas and the, and the private Buddhas and the flowers stick to the private Buddhas and they're busy trying to knock them off, to, to knock them to the ground. 
And she says the same thing. She says, they say, we can't wear flowers because we're monks, we're ascetics, and we can't adorn ourselves. And she says, this discrimination doesn't exist in the flowers. This exists in your mind. And they say, the flowers are not in accord with the Dharma. And she says, oh, au contraire. This discrimination you're making about the flowers is what is not in accord with the Dharma. So again, this theme, it's in how we see it. We make the piles of liberation and non-liberation. That has nothing to do with the way things actually are. Okay, so what do we do with our tendency to make piles like that? Um, we've been speaking about something similar in, in another group. We, we were looking at an image from a koan which says, um, Under a shadowless tree, the boat where people gather. So another beautiful image of the way we are all on this boat together and we are crossing over to the other shore, the community ferry boat. And we talked about the idea of of whether you can be off the boat. You know, sometimes it can feel like you're not, sometimes it feels like you're really on the boat. I get it. I'm on that boat with everybody else. And sometimes it can feel like you're not on the boat at all. So what we talked about was, again, it's, there is no off the boat. Everything that happens, every state you're in, everything you encounter, um, whether it's a good day or a bad day or an indifferent day or whatever's going on, all of that is on the boat. What changes is our ability to know that, our ability to experience that. Again, our perception. So it's a really big change to go from trying to figure out when I'm off the boat, how do I get on the boat, right? I mean, that is the question, too. When I don't feel the planks of the deck under my feet, when I don't know that I'm on the boat, what can I do to feel what's true? That's a different question. What can I do so that I can experience what's already true? Not, what can I do to make this thing happen where I can get onto the boat? And all of that is the, the, you know, as I was saying, the kind of deep underpinning of this uh, question about detachment from our own um, sillinesses <laughs> and pains uh, and whether there are things that relate to liberation and things that don't. So from that kind of deep underpinning, let's, let's do some nitty-gritty stuff about this. So the goddess says... It's only for self-obsessed people that the Buddha says that we should be detached from our sillinesses, from our greed, our, um, our aggression, our denial. And when we can detach from them, that's liberation. But if you're not self-obsessed, then those very things, their essence is liberation. Okay, so let's assume that we're not going to make a pile of good um, not self-obsessed and bad self-obsessed, okay? We're, we're, just, we're going to take the advice of the sutra and we're not even going to make that pile. We're going to look at self-obsessed and not self-obsessed as territory we walk through at different pl- points in our life. Maybe an evolutionary thing. Maybe we, we tend from more self-obsession to less self-obsession over time. Maybe we find that there are places that we're really kind of not self-obsessed 
anymore. And then there are places where we are still deeply mired in self-obsession. So if we don't make good and bad about that, the first, um, the first question is a kind of simple like di- self-diagnosis. Okay? Am, I, am I self-obsessed or not? <laughs> um, not because it's, um, you know, then you, can, then you can say, oh, good, I'm not, or oh, bad, I am. <laughs> but, but for a very specific reason, which is that the treatment that's offered is different depending on whether you're self-obsessed or not self-obsessed. The treatment's different. That's important because that's what we want. We want the right medicine for what ails us. Okay? So, how do you decide whether you're self-obsessed? Anybody have a question about that? Does anybody find that murky? Um, Okay. If you do, or even if you don't, an interesting question to ask is, what is the spiritual path I'm walking? What am I doing here? Where do I think I'm going? What am I hoping for? What's my dream? If your dream is a better you, you're (laughs) self-obsessed. And I'm not making that bad. I'm just saying. If your dream is, I'm doing this because I want to be happier, wiser, um, nicer, stronger, more courageous, you know, more skilled, whatever it is. That's, that's self-obsession. If you have another motivation for doing this, like, for instance, the one that the Vimala Kirti Sutra recommends, which is bodhicitta, same thing, the, the deep yearning and longing to be wiser, stronger, more courageous, more effective, kinder, all that stuff, but for the benefit of all beings then you're entering the territory of not self-obsessed. If the goal is, may I be more effective, more helpful for the benefit of all, that's a move away from self-obsession. Um, okay, so, so quickly, then, uh, a definition of self-obsession or, or a, a comment about it, um, it can mean, self-obsession can mean being full of greed, aggression, and denial. You know, you're just full of it. It's, it's squirting out of you all over the place onto everybody else. And you think that's fine, you know. Um, it can also mean that you're desperately unhappy about your greed, aggression, and denial and always trying to fix it always trying to work with it, all obsessed with it, always trying to make it better or stop it or heal it or something, but you're always in relationship with it. That's another form of self-obsession. Um, another, the, a third form of self, self-obsession is that you can spend a lot of your time trying to avoid those things in the world trying to avoid greed, aggression, and denial in the world around us because it's um, bad for us, because it's scary, because it's unpleasant, because it hurts, you know, all of those things. That's another form of self-obsession. It's just that the stuff you're obsessing about and trying to avoid, you've projected out there. Or it exists. It actually exists out there. But you have a sense of a self that needs protection from that. Um, the problem with that from the perspective of the Vimalakirti Sutra 
is that it puts you in an aversive or a defensive relationship with the world. Do you remember when, um, when, when Vimala Kirti was saying, um, how, how does the Bodhisattva deal with people who are suffering? Well, you can't ever say, poor you. Because if you say, oh, poor you, if you have what he called a sentimental view of compassion, the, the, the um, connection that the immediately gets made with poor you is bad, bad world. And you're not allowed to feel bad, bad world. You have to feel compassion without an aversive reaction to the world. Okay, so same thing here. The problem with... Um, this kind of obsession with with our pains, with our sufferings, is that it puts us in an aversive or defensive relationship both with ourselves and with the world. Does that make sense? Okay, I've got this problem and it's really hurting and I'm and I have I have to I have to do something about it or I have to get rid of it or I have to stay away from it or I have to um, deny that it exists or whatever it is. So an aversive or defensive relationship with ourselves and with the world. Um, so the goddess had said, the Buddha teaches detachment from um, these these qualities of greed, aggression, and denial, and all the other ones that, that we might have. The Buddha teaches detachment from them if you're self-obsessed. So if, if, if your tendency, if you are in the place in the map where you're, you're tending toward an obsession with um, those aspects of yourself that, that are causing you to suffer, then the treatment, if that's the diagnosis, the treatment is some detachment. That's, that's a good thing. That's a helpful thing. That's a positive thing. Get some distance from that stuff. Get some perspective on it. Be able to, as we say it, disidentify from it. To realize that it's not essentially you. Put some space in there. That's, um, and that's a good thing. Okay, the, and um, there is plenty, plenty, plenty of advice about how to do that in the Buddhist section of your local bookstore or on the internet at the book procuring site of your choice. So I'm not going to go into that because there's lots of advice about how to do that, how to get that little bit of detachment from those things. Um, From the koan perspective, what I want to point out in our typical kind of ornery way is that we have to be really careful about confusing the method with the goal. Detachment is a method, and it's a provisional method, and it's a method that works as a treatment, as a medicine for a particular problem. And from the perspective of the Cohen way, at a certain point, you're going to get detached from detachment. You're going to want to drop it. You're not going to need detachment anymore. We can, for complicated reasons in the West, also in the East, set up detachment as the goal. We think the detachment's the point. And so we do all this stuff in order to be detached, and if we get detached, we think, okay, now that's it. It's just a provisional, temporary, expendable method. Okay? And the point, really, 
of that detachment is um, you can as you get some distance from the stuff that causes you to suffer you can begin to experience for yourself non-self-obsession you have moments and then hours and then days and weeks and months and years that are not self-obsessed and that's the gift of the detachment so when you begin to connect with that you can move on to phase two of the treatment and phase two of the treatment is um, when she says for those who are not self-obsessed so to the extent that we're not self-obsessed in the places where we're not self-obsessed the Buddha says that the very essence of desire, anger, and folly is liberation. Okay, so so that's phase two of the treatment is is from moving away from things so that we can get some kind of objective relationship with them, some more realistic relationship with them, we come roaring back right towards them. Because there's nothing in the pile of not related to liberation. So now we're going to deal with all that stuff that seems hard to include in the pile of liberation, but is essential that we include in the pile of liberation. And we're going to do that not from um, a position of obsession about the self and the problems of the self, but from another position. Um, and so let me, let me give an example to talk about the difference between those two ways of approaching it. Let's talk about um, something kind of, I think, known to most of us, which is the romance of childhood. And by the romance of childhood, I mean the idea that most of what we are, so much of what's important about us, comes from what happened to us in our childhood. This is... Um, so common a belief in the dominant culture in North America that we almost don't question it. Um, The Buddha never said suffering comes from a bad childhood. (laughs) It's nowhere. So um, let's let's look at the romance of childhood. From a from a self obsessed um, point of view that means that what happened in childhood is your go-to story to explain things that are happening now okay it's the kind of default story that you're telling Um, especially especially when things go wrong from a not self-obsessed perspective that story of childhood first of all gets a lot of space in it you begin to really understand the fallibility of memory you begin to understand that your your story of childhood is aversion you know just aversion and that it changes over time it changes with you it changes if if it's not changing that's that's more of a problem than if it is um, but that it's it's a um it's something that has that has changeability, has impermanence, has malleability in it, and it's kind of interesting. Um, and if if there were things that I think you know anyone objectively would say were difficult in it, you even begin to wonder. You begin to lose the certainty about was that a good thing or a bad thing? You know that X happened. That 
um, my father did X, this happened to us. Um, whatever it was, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What if, you know, maybe it had some pretty interesting effects on you. You know, maybe it made you strong in certain ways, independent in certain ways, uh, compassionate, in certain, who knows? And I'm not doing the um, suffering is good for you because it makes you better and we're more noble. I'm saying we don't know. You know, we don't know. It's much more complicated than any kind of simple romance um, of, of, of what happened. So we begin to get interested in the complications of it, interested in where, what we can't know about it, what we can't really land on or be certain about. And that's not to deny anything. It's, it's, it's to come become intimate with it in a different way where we can hear it speak a different story. And we can begin to um, get interested in that story. And so the places that are hard and the, and the, you know, the places where we're like the tree that's grown around the rock in some kind of odd, funny shape because of things that have happened, become less like these um, insurmountable, irredeemable wounds in our lives and more like that weak ankle you have because you've sprained it a couple of times in your life, you know? And you know that if you're walking on uneven ground and you hit it just right, it's going to go out from under you, you know? So when we, when we encounter things in our, in our current lives that touch a place in us that, that is weak because it got sprained a couple of times in our childhood, it's like, oh yeah, that's the sprained ankle of my heart. You know, this person says X and I feel, you know, I have this whole big reaction to it because I just, my sprained ankle just went out from under me in my heart. And that's all right, you know, that's okay. Sometimes it's what makes us um, strange and interesting to each other. Um, Okay, so, so... How is it then that those things, the sprained ankle parts of our hearts and the things that really, that really hurt and cause suffering, how is it that they are manifestations of liberation, that they have the essence of liberation? Well, because it is in coming into relationship with them, it is in feeling the sorrow of them, the disappointment of them, the pain of them, feeling all of that that our hearts get cracked open. And there is no awakening without the heart getting cracked open. Awakening is not an activity of the mind. Awakening is an activity of the heart-mind. And if you leave the heart out, you've got the private Buddha keeping herself safe from any kind of difficulty, any kind of defilement, even calling it a defilement. So it's like the heavens, the heavenly realms where the devas live, where everything is perfect and nothing changes and awakening is not possible because nothing changes. It's in this world where our ankle goes out from under us and our hearts get broken and we feel sorrow and we weep tears that are like solvent for whatever is stuck within us, um, that awakening can happen. The light comes through the cracks, the places where our heart breaks. Um, 
in Japan, there's a custom when a, when a beautiful tea bowl breaks, not to throw it away, but to mend the cracks with gold. And I've always loved that because that seemed like an image to me of the light coming through the cracks. That's where the gold shines. Um, and so we have, um, we have ideas in the koan like um, blessing this poverty. How do you bless this poverty? And the answer in this, in this poem is um, there's something that can happen in the dark that can't happen in the light. So you bless this poverty if there's no oil for the lamp by doing what you can only do in the dark, which is feel your way along the wall and, and know where you're going only from the feel of the wall. And there are um, phrases like, it is better to have nothing than to have something good. So again, at times in our lives, when we're in this part of the territory, when we're looking for the medicine for this particular um, discomfort in us, it's good to have nothing. It's good to be in the dark. It's good to let everything come down to the black earth. And when it's time to lie down on the black earth, to lie down on the black earth. Sometimes that's our practice. And we have to do that. If we avoid doing that, there is no awakening. There might be enlightenment, but there's no awakening. Um, And maybe the last thing I want to say about that is in our tradition, in the koan tradition, there is a lot of affection for surprise and the interruption of habit and even shock. Uh, We are not going for a kind of steady state anesthetization, you know, of, of the feeling life. We are going for a a kind of robust engagement in the world and a willingness to be surprised, to be interrupted, to have our habitual ways of seeing things and doing things pulled, the rug just pulled right out from under us. We really value that. And that's also part of this work of um, how is it that that our, our, what we might call our hindrances, the things where we suffer, how is it that they are of the essence of liberation? Because if we let them, they have the power to interrupt, to surprise, to shock, to pull the rug out from under us. When it hurts so bad, you can't even draw a breath. What if you sit right there, in hurting so bad, you can't even draw a breath and see what's possible. Is there a gap that opens up in that place of no breath that you can fall right through into something else? Are you willing to be shaken up? Are you willing to be surprised? Are you willing to crack? Are you willing to shatter? All of that at certain points on the journey are essential. And that is how anything, anything in the words of the koans, what is the blown hair sword? What is the sword so sharp that if you blew a hair against it, the hair would cut? Anything can be the blown hair sword, including a moment of our greed, including an upwelling of our aggression, including uh, the fog of our 
denial. Anything, if we let it, can be the blown hair sword. Anything can shock us out of habit, out of um, not seeing, so that suddenly that world um, that a second ago looked either very difficult or very ordinary is radiant as the pure land because we have allowed ourselves to be surprised by it. We have allowed ourselves to be surprised by our own pain into something else. So that's include that. Um, requite the generosity of that um, samadhi of the universe out of which we cannot fall by excluding nothing from the dream of our liberation, by looking at everything as the blown hair sword that could jump shift us right into a completely different way of experiencing everything. And I think that's my amplification of that bit of the sutra and what it seems to me the goddess might have been pointing towards when she said what she said. Thank you all. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.